Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds, which is actually a special Grand Rounds because it's done in conjunction with Telehealth Grand Rounds. And we are delighted today uh, to have our speaker join us, Dr. Don Koziak. He'll be introduced in just a minute. I have a few announcements to make. As you know, we have this culinary medicine program before Medical Grand Rounds each Friday. And today there were wonderful breakfast smoothies. I hope you took advantage of that and of the education that comes with it. We also do a quiz every Friday morning based on last week's topic. This week's topic was about nutrients and vitamins. The last week's topic was about vegan and vegetarian diets and the benefits. The question was, name a health benefit of a balanced plant-based diet. And the winner put lower cholesterol, and that was Danette Flint. So Danette, you won this week's prize, which is a vegan soup mix. <laughs> and this vegan soup mix uh, uh, comes from a nonprofit business uh, it says it employs women who have experienced chronic unemployment, poverty, or difficult life situations. And this is for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so to introduce our speaker today, I'd like to introduce Dr. John Berkmeyer to you. He's our Executive Vice President for Enterprise Support Services. He's our Chief Academic Officer. He's a Professor of Surgery and of the Dartmouth Institute. John, please tell us about today's speaker. Morning, everybody. Thank you, uh, Rich, and thank you uh, to the Department of Medicine for um, co-sponsoring what will prove to be just a, a fascinating Grand Rounds in conjunction with uh, the DH Center for Telehealth. Um, as uh, many of you know, I was here before, but um, and back to the institution for only six months, and I'm learning a lot of things, but um, perhaps the most um, exciting things that, I'm, uh, that I've learned is um, what telehealth is, and I have to uh, give credit to, doc, to Dr. Sarah Pletcher. It's a leader for my um, accelerated education, and I've uh, really grown to appreciate how transformative uh, uh, this new technology and new approach to healthcare uh, is, not only for the nation, but uh, for the population that we serve here um, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. It is through Sarah that I uh, had the great privilege to meet Dr. Don Koziak. Uh, Don has a, has a really interesting background. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of North Dakota, completed his university, his emergency medicine residency training at the Mayo Clinic, um, subsequently went on to receive additional training in his Master's of Business Administration. Uh, he is a decorated officer in the U.S. Army, served several tours in um, Operation Iraqi in enduring freedom. But why he's here is uh, Don is arguably among the nation's top two or three thought leaders in the burgeoning field of telehealth. Um, telehealth, um, as you'll um, appreciate, is much more than um, a technology or a widget. It is a, a science and an operational competency wedded to technology that has the potential to fundamentally uh, change how, how we deliver health care. Um, Don um, acquired his expertise in the context of his current role of executive medical director of Avera's eCare. Avera Health System is, uh, is um, a health system that's about twice as large as we are. It's based in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and by um, accident of history, some great vision, and some very generous funding by the, by the Helmsley Foundation, about 20 years ago, positioned itself as the avant-garde of the field of telemedicine. Um, it um, learned not only how to embed year-over-year um, -year improvements in digital technology, uh, but also learned the science and the operational basic blocking and tackling for how that technology is used to connect physicians to one another, hospitals to one another, and everybody in between in uh, allowing health care to be delivered as close to home as possible um, at the lowest possible cost for the population and with expertise that sometimes is 
difficult to find um, among hospitals outside of um, academia. Um, the Avera Health System, as you'll appreciate, manages um, among the largest telemedicine hubs in um, in the country, managing well over a hundred hospitals spread out over a over a seven state, 600,000 square foot mile area, managing not only hundreds of hospitals, but all of the but all of the transportation systems that link patients across those hospitals. Um, we are, uh, you know, uh, uh, without putting too sharp um, a point on it, uh, we at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, in our efforts to significantly scale out our own efforts in telehealth, have been leaning heavily on the expertise of Don and his peers at um, Avera and hope to be working a lot more closely with them in the future. So, Don, thank you so much for your efforts, and we look forward to your talk. Excellent. Well, thank you for the introduction. If anyone wants to hear a crazy way to get here from South Dakota, I can tell you my travel story from yesterday. It involved an airplane sliding off a runway in LaGuardia, being diverted to Boston and being the only one happy about that. Because I was like, yes, now I can make it. Otherwise, I wasn't going to. So uh, in emergency medicine, it is customary to show a picture of the shop in which you work. So this is a picture of our center, uh, our tertiary center, Avera McKinnon Hospital and University Health Center. So the build, the, the in front is the uh, our big cancer center. That's the new thing. So reasons to stay awake in the military. We talk about staying awake instead of objectives. I'm going to grab this fancy green pointer because it works a little better. We're just going to discuss some of the challenges of telemedicine, a little bit about defining the role telemedicine plays specifically in acute medicine, and then how can we uh, generate these programs both in urban and uh, rural settings. So from the headlines. Here we talk about small rural hospitals show poor results, that's Science Daily. Healthcare access is lagging in rural hospitals. And for the most part, that's true. And anyone uh, grew up in a rural area? I did. Yeah, would you say that your hospital there was as good as this one? Do you think that the average person, though, thinks that they should be able to get the same care there as they do when they come here? Some people think the same stuff is available there, and, uh, and we know maybe it's not. I'm going to stand over here. I think it's easier to see everybody. Uh, so here's just the setting up the challenge. Rural health care, when you live in rural areas, not only does ge geography help dictate the standard of care which you get, it also talks about your access to some preventative care. So you can see they're more likely to suffer from those uh, conditions. Also, although 62 million people live in what we would describe a rural or frontier area, 80% of that land mass is, uh, is rural people living there, and only 9% of all doctors and 12% of all pharmacists live where those people are. So obviously there's a challenge of matching where the people are living with where people are practicing the trades in which we all practice. And then just some more demographics of how, how uh, the differences of care. This is a study out of Nebraska with their teletrauma uh, lectures and series. And they found if you just control injury severity score and control all things, you're just twice as likely to die in rural counties than you are if you're in one of their tertiary counties. And only a third of all motor vehicle accidents happen in rural areas, but two-thirds of the deaths come from our rural facilities. So obviously there's some things going on in the rural environments, and uh, you know the American College of Surgeons has developed their trauma system, and how do you do that and roll that out and do trauma education in rural facilities, trying to combat some of that data. And then uh, if you're uh, unlucky enough to live in a CAW, a CAW is a critical access hospital, the, the data that has been published twice says uh, you have fewer clinical capabilities, you have worse measured outcomes in care, and higher mortality for things that we consider pretty standard, heart attack, CHF, and pneumonia. So obviously we're facing some challenges in our rural communities to get them up to, to care. And then again, Medicare patients, uh, it's uh, is quoted to say, uh, who's treated in rural hospitals are less likely to receive the recommended treatments than those treated in urban hospitals and significantly higher adjusted 30-day post-AMI. So I'm painting the picture that there's things that we could do better in our rural hospitals. And one of those things in the challenge of that is, is this. There's a workforce shortage. <clears throat> How many of you would volunteer to go work in Wishick, North Dakota? No? No? No hands, right? So it's not where you want to go. It's not where you want to do your practice. 
And once you make that decision, now you have this geographic isolation, right? Because Wishick, North Dakota, the next closest hospital is 60 miles away, 70 miles away. So you get to stand in the front door and say, send me anything that you want, and I have to take care of it. And then, of course, uh, you know, those hospitals are barely surviving, so low health care margins, and then this increasing reliance on people in this room, the specialists and all the technology to do, provide the care we have, and then that demand for quality, like we touched on. People believe when they walk in the front door, they should get the same care that they would get if they walked in any front door of any hospital. And so we believe that telemedicine can really break in any of these spots and, and, and boop up all of them. So if you have no patient volumes, you don't have any economics, then you don't have a workforce, then you don't have access. And if we start with access to that care, we increase all of these things, and it's more likely that those rural hospitals are going to survive, their standard of care is going to get better. So here's the job description uh, that we put out for our rural physicians. Know all, be on call half the time, and, uh, and don't make any mistakes. Kind of a daunting task. But it's not just rural that's having challenges. You know, there's a large volume of people to see the specialists that we have. You'll schedule any outpatient appointment, and you'll know if you need to go see a specialist that it can be months to get in. Uh, obviously, uh, the one that impacts us in our tertiary center, and I know in your tertiary center, is although you have bed shortages all the time, having the right patients in your bed has sometimes been a challenge. And so we're trying to figure out ways that you can use telemedicine uh, to get the right patients where they need to be. So I'll use just the example of the ICU. So here's an aging population driving the ICU. Right now, ICU covers about 30% of the total costs of acute care hospitals, and ICU beds are supposed to grow 13% to, from uh, 2007 to 18% of all beds in 2030. So obviously the challenge of these baby boomers now ending up in our ICUs is going to uh, expand. And the cost of putting in that ICU, one bed, is about $1.5 million. So if you've got to build more beds, now you've got to spend money, and you've got to have people to staff that. Right now, the physician shortage of intensivists compared to demand, you can see that it's not matching that. So how do you how do you marry up the fact that we're going to have sicker patients, need more beds, and not have enough doctors to take care of them? Well, you have to figure out a way to uh, force multiply, if you will. How can you put a doctor in a central location and help manage a team across states or across towers of ICUs? And that's the concept of the tele-ICU or EICU. So you can see you have this bedside model 24-7, and I won't read it to you, but there's some challenges, and of course that would be a holy grail if you could do that everywhere, every place, but you can't. And so you can leverage some teleconsult model, that's the on-demand, hey, I'll give you some help, but you lose some of that uh, real-time monitoring and things that don't happen when you do a consult. So just a nice little slide to tell you the differences of, of that. But does telemedicine work? Well. In our own uh, health system, we thought, could we really do it with all those sick people in an ICU? How can you manage that? And some of the first studies that came out about telemedicine in ICU, they talked about more of a description study like any new thing. This is great. It's a second set of eyes. It really helps coordinate like a quarterback model for ICU care when you have the world's greatest intensivist at the bedside, but even the world's greatest intensivist can't be everywhere every time, but software can. So it can help bring the sickest patient to the forefront and help recognize those people that might need an urgent intervention. Or perhaps it is the world's greatest ICU team and the, the different doctors and Audrey pulled this person from the clutches of death, circling the drain, we're high-fiving everybody, and then the next day they die from a PE from the DVT because they didn't get any prophylaxis because it was missed when you were saving this patient, and you missed the easy stuff. So that's what happens in the background. And I can tell you the early literature was not very supportive of uh, EICU. And when you look at it, it was part of that culture change that needs to go on with ICU. So. Uh, <clears throat> Thomas and the gang down there in Texas, they said, you know, ICU really doesn't help anything. There was no overall improvement in mortality or length of stay. And then you looked at, if you do a dive into the data, they said, well, only 31% of the doctors that were participating allowed their patients to be in the EICU. So that would mean three out of 10 patients in the ICU were monitored by it, and those other seven weren't, but their numbers were counted in here. Do you think that's going to make any impact at all? In fact, the only way the EICU could engage in there is if somebody was actively having CPR or needed some kind of emergent intervention. So that seems kind of uh, cloudy. So UMass, uh, 
uh, does a, their own study and says, well, why don't we make it so all patients that are in the ICU get monitored by a tele-ICU and what kind of results could you get? And of course, you can see there's reduced, uh, a reduced uh, adjusted odds of mortality. Hospital length of stay was also down, so it wasn't like they were just kicking patients out of the ICU and then they were staying in the hospital longer. Overall, their care plan uh, was done. And lower rates of preventable complications, mainly because there's someone in the background helping them uh, look at it. And so here's just another schematic of that study. Does telemedicine work? That's always the, the great question in the ICU. Uh, and it works in an academic center, but can it work in the community practice, right? That's the next challenge. Once you prove something works in the academic world, can it work in a regular hospital? And here's a study that just recently came out looking again at a pre and post implementation of an ICU. And you can see that they had some great results, their mortality decreasing, their length of uh, stay decreasing. So this is like another tool being uh, thrown in your toolbox as an intensivist to take care of patients. What about in the emergency department? So Dr. Galley uh, down in Mississippi has taken uh, about six or seven hospitals and he's wired uh, the, them to allow emergency care to be provided from remote. And on the other end, a specially trained nurse practitioner that works uh, specifically with their team. And they've had about uh, 40,000 patients since October. And they've had no real descriptions of the care, but just high satisfaction rates. So we got to start somewhere. You got to describe that people are kind of happy with it before you can get into any of the sciences. And then what's probably more prevalent in uh, emergent care right now is telestroke, and you have your own telestroke model here. And so this is just talking about can they get the correct eligibility of diagnosis by having that teleneurologist available? What is their intravenous TPA rates and rate of intracerebral hemorrhage? So what they're proving with these studies is is non-inferior to face-to-face -face care by having a remote uh, neural uh, interventionalist. And same thing. So the cost of providing that neural interventionalist care is uh, is. Uh, 2,500 per quality adjusted life years. I'm not really sure what that number means, so I had to look it up. And the normal one is a threshold is about 50,000, we say is a good thing. So 2,500 is well below that threshold of investing the cost for your return on investment and what you get out of having that remote thing. More in the emergency departments are at-risk folks, the kids. There's a study here about five emergency departments connecting in a pediatric emergency medicine, 226 patients, so small cohorts. And uh, you can see that the referring physician changed his diagnosis or her diagnosis more often, and uh, therapeutic interventions were, su were suggested and carried out more often if telemedicine, face-to-face -face video versus over the phone. So there is something about seeing the patient, and you all know that you have your doorway test. You walk around the corner, you see the patient, and already you know sick, not sick, based off nothing else other than what they look like. So more, uh, how do you even get out into the field before patients arrive? Here's a, a service that's doing uh, ECGs before patients' arrival, and so they're transmitting them to the tertiary center. They're looking at that ECG and then directing them to a PCI center or sending a helicopter to them based off getting that early intervention and early diagnosis done. And you can see the standard goals are being met. 75% of all stemming patients are being triaged from the field. Pretty important stuff that's going on. Here is actually one that's been going on even longer in Italy. They've been doing this for a long time. So they actually have a cardiologist in Italy that sits in a bunker and manages all ambulances, all ECG transmission for anyone that has chest pain or, or those kind of things. And you can see they've had 200,000 patients that they've done there. And their PCI versus fibrolytics uh, rates are quite well based off the ability to have that cardiologist actively involved when the patient's still on their living room floor instead of waiting till they get to the hospital 35 or 40 minutes later. And now we're even stepping outside of the hospital and we're saying, well, how can we even get interventions even faster? So we're putting this 12-lead ECG data into hospital or to ambulances. We're actually putting the little webcams on paramedics as they're uh, driving down the road or taking care of patients so we can intervene on the scene and start that trauma care or that resuscitation care long before the patient uh, arrives at the hospital. Childcare centers, who'd think you'd have telemedicine at childcare centers? So here's a great study. It says you drop your kid off at daycare, you sign up for this program that says, hey, if your kid has a runny nose or a sore throat or maybe an earache or maybe a low-grade fever, we're gonna see them via telemedicine instead of you having to come home from work and then take your kid to the, to the clinic and, and you get the story. And right here it says 400 weeks of observation in five centers, an absence rate that was clearly down, and 93.8% of these uh, said that they would have gone to the clinic or the ED if they wouldn't have got this intervention while at the daycare center. So now you're starting to think of other ways that you could do this. Psychiatry, 
Psychiatry is a great example of how you can have one psychiatrist in a room and cover several different inpatient wards and having advanced practice providers and some nursing staff that can help you do some of those rounds. And then dermatology, this is, I just thought was an interesting study because this, uh, this is dermatology via a social network. So this was some folks that were down, uh, I believe in Haiti right after we had some troubles, and they were trying to identify all these rashes, right? And they were like, I don't know what this is. Maybe we should post it. So they put HIPAA-stripped data right onto Facebook and said, hey, you should really tell me what this is. And it turns out that 75% of them needed no additional referral or pattern based off just a couple dermatologists saying, I think that's that. Pretty simple, pretty easy, no payment, no HIPAA stuff, just people helping out in a time of crisis. And this is the one that I think most people think of when they think of telemedicine. And if you read the news now, that difference between a business-to-business -business telemedicine, which is hospital-to-hospital -hospital or doctor-to-doctor, -doctor, and that of a direct-to-consumer model. A direct-to-consumer model is I reach in my pocket, I have a sore throat, I call up one of those services, an on-demand service, and they tell me what's wrong with me and give me a prescription if, if so indicated. They're there, they have board certified doctors that are available, they have about a 20 to 30 minute response time, some of them are faster than that. And there's a national network that supports those things. Right now, if you read the states that are fighting telemedicine, it has to do with this kind of telemedicine, not the kind that we're gonna be talking about in detail in a moment. And then probably the greatest example of uh, an integrated telemedicine network for emergent care is that of Romania. Who would have thought Romania would have the most advanced telemedicine network that I know of? And I've traveled a lot of places, right? So Romania, um, from the ground up, from their ambulances all the way into their hospitals and health systems are wired. They've been able to do that, and they've been able to do that in just the last few years because like a lot of um, second world slash coming into age, skipped all that, tele all that. so think about your cell phone, right? You had the bag phone, and then you had this, and then you had that. They just came in with a 4G network, and everybody had smartphones, right? So it was really easy to use that technology, and maybe their HIPAA laws aren't the same as our HIPAA laws, and everybody's employed by the government in healthcare, so what are you gonna do, cause trouble? <coughs> so. They have their ambulances, and all of their emergency departments in the country are virtually connected to their three hubs. So here's a little ambulance that the doctors go out on. So they have their regular fire department response to stuff, but then when it's at a certain level, then the doctor and nurse drive to the actual scene or fly in their helicopter. And here's an example of, I was in uh, some very, very, very really dinky little town in, uh, in northern Romania, and they had this technology here. So their emergency bed was here, and this was their connection to their site. And here's their command center. So this is all the streets monitoring the, the ambulances and their traffic. And then this is the command center of the actual, um, in the hospital. In their emergency bay, they have this, this thing that monitors all of their hospitals across the uh, country. So pretty advanced technology for what we do here. So I'm gonna, I said a lot, I was kind of laying the groundwork for what is telemedicine, what's the need? And what are the different ways that people are using telemedicine? And then I'm gonna tell our own story of how Avera got into some telemedicine. So this I think is an interesting quote. E-emergency is our, our, our trade name for our tele-emergency product. And Tom Dean is uh, past president of the NRHA, the National Rural Health Association, and a member of MedPAC. Anyone know what MedPAC is? Kind of decides how much we get paid and that kind of stuff. So kind of an important influencer. And I like the fact that he says he's, it's the greatest thing he's witnessed in 30 years of practice. So that's a good thing for him to say. So here's our brand, Avera eCare. And in order to understand Avera's eCare program, we have to understand Avera and how did we get into it and what was the reason that we were doing telemedicine. So here's Avera. We're a 31 hospital health system uh, in South Dakota. So if you don't know your geography, this is South Dakota. North of that is North Dakota. Good. Some people say Canada. I'm just testing. So there's North Dakota. We have a buffer. And then we have Minnesota, Iowa, Nebraska. So our health system is mostly in South Dakota, but because of we hang out at that four-corner border, we kind of trickle over into some of those other systems. And as they pointed out, we're about $3.5 billion in revenue, uh, give or take. We have about 100,000. 110,000 home visits, 21 nursing homes. Those 31 hospitals, though, is a little deceiving because 26 
of those hospitals are those critical access hospitals, those small 25 beds or less places. So it sounds big, but most of them are small. And then our tertiary center, the Avera McKinnon Hospital, which I showed you the picture of, is a 565 bed hospital, kind of like yours, has a whole bunch of specialists of all sorts and sizes. And, uh, and that's where we funnel most of the patients within our health system. And our mission is pretty straightforward. We're started by some Benedictine sisters and presentation sisters who uh, had two different hospitals. They merged together, and voila, you get a vera, which means to be well. Pretty interesting name. And our purpose of a vera e-care under that umbrella is better access to care, better care and better outcomes, lower cost, and rural workforce sustainability. It's that because in our mission, our goal is to make a positive impact in the lives and health of persons and communities by providing quality services guided by Christian values. So rural health has been a focus of ours for a long time. We want to try to keep the patients local. We want to try to keep the patients local because of geography. If you're in Gregory, South Dakota, you don't want to drive four hours to see the specialist for 10 minutes to come back uh, and and see your regular doctor tell you they've done anything else. So that triple aim, how do we impact that? Certainly have the, the clinical services that we're always providing. You put a telemedicine or telehealth enterprise on top of that, we call it a virtual hospital. And then we're able to consolidate operations and get this economy of scale to allow doctors to sit in a bunker and push their care out. And I'm gonna show you how that works. So I showed you that initial map that is Avera. That's here. But our telemedicine network is actually much bigger than Avera. So we're, as he was pointing out, about 600,000 square miles. So to put that in perspective, that's about the size of France and Germany combined. So big territory that we cover with our telemedicine network. So when I'm working in South Dakota and I'm working with the hospital in Afton, Wyoming, I'm transferring to people in Salt Lake City. So I'm working with the tertiary centers in Salt Lake City or up in Billings, Montana or Bismarck, North Dakota. So it's not a ploy to bring patients to Sioux Falls to our tertiary center. Does it help support our mission? Absolutely. But outside of that network, it helps support other care of patients. And as we trickle down here into Kansas, there's a few more sites that are going to be popping up. Then we're working with Kansas City and Wichita and those kind of things. So our network, uh, Avera got into telemedicine early on in the 90s, as you're pointing out, uh, for that specialty care, what we call e-consult. That's the dermatologist, I need an appointment, and I don't want to drive four hours. How do you do that? And um, in the 1990s, it was really slow. There wasn't a lot of connectivity. Nobody really used it all that much. So over a period of 10 years, it slowly got busier. And it got busier for lots of reasons. One, the connectivity got better, so we were able to connect to more places. And two, Technology got cheaper. So just like when you went to Best Buy and the TV that used to be $2,000 is now $300, same thing was happening in this space. As the cost came down, more people were, were jumping on board. And right now we have 148 sites that we do that traditional telemedicine in. And I'll talk more about that in the about. So our journey was that 10 or 12 years in here. About um, 2003, our CMO and CEO went to a conference, and they were hearing about this tele-ICU stuff. What is this? How does it work? This is really great for towers of ICUs, but have you ever thought about taking it and spreading it out over multiple hospitals across several states? So we went back and did that. Uh, and it was the first in the country to look at that rural model, supporting the hospital that isn't the tertiary center, as well as uh, supporting the tertiary center. And uh, over the 10 years now, we've had 75,000 plus patients, and we'll get into all that. But what we found was when we were supporting those rural and, and critical access hospitals, it worked great in our tertiary center, but those rural hospitals were taking their fresh trauma and their fresh STEMIs uh, into their ICU room and saying, intensivist, please help us with this. And the intensivist was going, whoa, wait, that's not exactly what I do. I mean, I can do it, but that's not my comfort zone. I really would like that to be sorted out a little bit more, those kind of things. And so we started thinking about what would it be like if we got into some emergent care and put cameras in, in emergency departments. And in our pharmacy platform, same thing, how do you support that, uh, that practitioner to have a pharmacist review every order written by a provider? That is actually a uh, federal mandate that every order written by you all in this building has to be reviewed by a pharmacist before given to a patient. It happens in a lot of tertiary centers, but it doesn't happen in every hospital. And we'll talk about why. So now I can do that by putting a bunch of pharmacists in a room and having them review every order every time on every patient. So those started in 2008 and 2009 based off some generous uh, donations from the Helmsley Charitable Trust. 
uh, one of their grand, one of the grandsons of Leonie Helmsley lives in South Dakota, was a friend, said, what are you guys investing in? We were talking about this, isn't it great? And then uh, he invested some money, and that was our seed of grant money to get this thing flourishing. And then as we started to do that, we said, well, what else can we do virtually? So we thought, what are the other at-risk patients? You have um, long-term care facility patients and correctional facility patients, but it would be great if we could treat them in place for different reasons, but, uh, but still treat them in place. And uh, you can see our, our growth in that. And now we've added some nursing. We do nursing in schools. So we support uh, a lot of different schools across the upper Midwest. So all of those programs used to be in different areas of the hospital siloed like you can imagine here if you had those programs and in 2012 we got together uh, and said let's let's we talk about a virtual hospital let's build a virtual hospital and so what you're seeing here is just a schematic of our workstation now so here is our EICU off to the side in the middle is our e-pharmacy platform over here is our e-emergency and e-access programs and telenursing so we've brought all of our team members together into one building to provide that virtual care and on the side that you're not seeing and then is all the back office staff that you're going to see to run a virtual hospital. So anything that you need to run a hospital, we have the same of uh, just to run our virtual hospital. So I talked about that e-consult model. What does that mean? That's, the, again, what some people think of telemedicine, that scheduled appointment with their specialist. We do about uh, 7,700 uh, consults annually. Most, I'll show you what most of that is in and the specialties that do that. What we've done to really help uh, bring that about is we used to have it so that if you were the dermatologist and you were going to do telemedicine, you'd block a time to say you're going to do telemedicine consults and maybe you had to go to a special room in the hospital or a special room in your clinic to do that and it never really worked. And so to troubleshoot that, to put that through the lean process, we said, well, why don't we just put cameras in every one of your rooms in your clinic. And then for you, when you're walking up to the clinic door and reviewing the chart, it, you review the chart, you open the door, it's Susie sitting in front of you, hi Susie, that's great, isn't it? And then the next door you go in and you're reviewing the chart, you open it up and it's a screen that's on and it's Susie's sister who happens to be in Gregory. So as you can do that flow within the workflow of the patient, uh, for the physician, now you are encouraging their use, their barrier to entry is less. And then I tell them, you know, do you like driving to Gregory? Well, it's okay, but I don't like to go every week. Well, what if I could make it so you only had to go half that time? And so that four hours you're spending in the car, you can see more patients, or you can be at home with your family. So last year, uh, just in savings of miles traveled by our patients who were seen via telemedicine is 2.6 million miles, or 11 trips to the moon. <laughs> it seems like a lot. And the kind of specialties services that we're doing, again, we have 148 total sites for our e-consult program. Most lion shares infectious disease, they were the, our early adopters, so they're doing a lot of telemedicine. Inpatient, outpatient, in the correctional facilities, following people for outpatient antibiotics in some of the rural hospitals. So a lot of creative creative stuff. Uh, hepatology, we've, we've, our liver transplant program is uh, very new. And our geography for our liver transplant program is quite diverse, I showed you. So they have to be able to force multiply those transplant surgeons, those hepatologists, and get them out long distances. And so driving them to Bismarck, North Dakota, 12 hours away, even though that's on our list, wouldn't be very economical. So they're doing a lot of their outreach that way. And you can see the other consult services that we do a large share of. <clears throat> Tele-ICU. So what I say is uh, the ICU care, for me, is like air traffic control. So if you look at um, even the setups, here's our tele-ICU setup uh, in our bunker, and here is a, an ICU, or excuse me, this is air traffic control. Looks similar. What they're doing is the same thing. They're looking for trends. They're monitoring lots of data. Any of you fly? in an airplane before? Not personally fly the airplane, but have flown in an airplane? Yeah. yeah. So are, do you really think the pilot up front can't land the airplane without talking to these people? They can. They land planes all the time without talking. A lot of airspace is uncontrolled. But it doesn't make you feel a little bit more comfortable to know that they're talking to air traffic control, particularly like landing in Boston or New York, when it's busy and there's lots of things going on. And yeah, they could do it and they can talk to each other and they can figure it out. But having that in the background is just a, a safety, another set of eyes, right? So that's what, if you think about telemedicine and tele-ICU, that's what it is. It's not taking over your care. It's not big brother looking over your shoulder. It's about having that second set of eyes available to you. Somebody to reach out to when you're saying, hey, I'm hearing this noise clicking over here on this engine. Can you tell me what I should do and where I should land? That would be uh, something that I would look at. And um, even the world's greatest doctor can have a bad day. 
Everybody agree? Yes or yes? Okay. And even the world's greatest doctor can't be everywhere every time. So I use the example of air traffic control. So the worst air, uh, airplane disaster in history, Tenerife, 2747s run into each other on the runway, 400 plus people die. And the interesting part of that was KLM was involved. And the month before, KLM puts up this picture of the world's greatest pilot. He's on every cover. He's the trains all these people to fly 747s. And when the crash happened, they said, let's get Bill. He needs to go investigate what happened. And guess who crashed? It was Bill. So bad things happen even to the world's greatest person. And why did it happen? There was no air traffic control. So here's just a schematic of how we do things. You can see that we have real-time cardiac monitoring. Uh, so various patients, and these might be in five or six different hospitals or across multiple states. And they can pull up anyone that they're watching distinctly. They have their kind of their dashboard for care. You can see he's into an electronic medical record here. And there's some decision support software working in the background. How does it, what kind of impact can it have? This is just some of our raw data. <clears throat> For our quarters, you can see DVT prophylaxis as we've gone live, has now hit 100% across the board. Hospital length of stay occurred to Apache scoring. Everybody, Apache scoring is uh, everybody that participates. It tells you if you're a 54-year-old woman who has a heart attack and you had uh, diabetes and asthma, your likelihood of surviving the event, the likelihood of how long you should stay in the hospital, all that kind of stuff. So compared to the predicted number, <clears throat> of course, you can see we're well below the uh, length of stay and mortality as well. So those patients that are engaged with <clears throat> EICU, not only are they getting out further, but uh, they're dying less often. And then the impact, the financial impact of a tele-ICU, here's your scenario. You have a typical 20-bed unit. That would be a typical hospital across the upper Midwest <clears throat> and across the country is about 20 beds or so. And you just want to improve your, um, your length of stay by 0.2 days. So your average length of stay is 2.9. You want to decrease that. And if you do that, it's about $750 a day. And if you can just market, move this down just a touch, Lots of savings. And when you get the right patients in your bed, so instead of having the 89-year-old grandma with pneumonia who's comfort cares, and you have the neurointerventionalist patient that had a clot bust uh, and now is going to have great outcomes, those are the kind of patients you want in this ICU, I imagine. And the 89-year-old grandma would be better served in a different ICU, perhaps, that doesn't need all the specialty care that you can bring there. Not that there's anything against 89-year-old grandmas. It could be a 55-year-old person with pneumonia. <clears throat> but you can increase that case min index, and by having sicker patients in your ICU, you can increase your revenue care. I'm not going to get into the finances, but there's some people in the room that might be interested in finance, so I have to at least have one finance slide. <laughs> Pharmacy. Our e-pharmacy program has a centralized pharmacist, I told you, sitting in the room doing first order entry review. So how that works, uh, so I'll tell you how it worked in my hometown of Wishick, North Dakota. When I would moonlight there as a resident, uh, I would write an order, and then the nurse would say, what does that say I can't read it? So that was the first step. And then I would tell him or her what, it, what that was, and then she would go to the closet, and she'd go get out whatever it was, and I wrote for deltiazem, and she bought, brought back diazepam. See, because it sits right next to each other in the room. Uh, and so you can see how errors happen pretty quickly. Now in my hometown of Wishick, North Dakota, the provider writes an order if they so choose to still write electronic order entry for most people. That electronically goes to our centralized pharmacist. In about 11 minutes or so, uh, they're reviewing right patient, right drug, right dose, right time. They're releasing that order to an automated dispensing unit so the nurse can put his or her thumbprint on the device. The only drawer that opens is the drawer that is ordered by the provider, verified by the pharmacist is, is the right one. They take out the unit dose, the one unit dose, walk down to the patient, barcode patient, barcode drug. Now you have a closed loop system. Pretty easy and pretty fancy for that to use. Uh, right now we're, you know, we're 133,000 patients about seven years of doing that. They not only have then access to that pharmacy first order review, they have that consultative support. So if you need to call and say, hey, pharmacist, I got this. What do you recommend for pain management or Coumadin dosing or whatever it might be? Some of that clinical decision support. Hey, our nomogram for our antibiotics says we should be using this if this is what you think. And then finally, being able to talk about regulatory support. So how did the local pharmacist there, how do we order whatever it is my doctor wants? to have. So you can see here lots of orders 
Almost two million orders have been reviewed by our pharmacy team. Sounds like pretty mundane work because they're only finding 32,000 serious safety events out of those two million. But those uh, 32,000 serious safety events defined by the federal government equals lots of money. So when you have one of those serious safety events, there's a price tag, and that price tag says $64 million in avoided costs. So that's kind of a big deal for those of you that are looking for that different way to provide care. And you can see some of the things that they do on a routine basis when they're doing an intervention. Most of the interventions they do are not serious safety events. Most of the time it's putting a note or a message to the physician saying, hey, you know, the next dose you're going to want to renally dose, or did you really mean to put 1,000 milligrams of azithromycin, or did you want 500? You know, the little things that happen with electronic orders that sometimes are just a little bit fuzzy. That having a pharmacist look at it goes, that doesn't make sense, versus someone that doesn't have a pharmacy training going, I'll just give that because the physician ordered it. <clears throat> Long-term care, we're in 30 sites. This is an area that I didn't think that I'd be excited about providing care in, and it actually has been a really a wonderful experience to help get this program up and running, mainly because of the results of being able to keep them local and not coming to an emergency department to get their urine tested, and then they ended up being admitted and all those things. So 55% avoided transfer rate. Correctional facilities, the same thing. Taking care of inmates in the prison population instead of coming to your hospitals, 40% uh, transfer avoidance rate. And just transfer costs alone, again, not counting going to the emergency department and the cost of that, the state has told us we've saved them $1.1 million. So real money for the taxpayer as well. Last but not least, we're going to touch a little bit on our e-emergency for the last five minutes, and then we'll wrap up. Our e-emergency program is 24 hours of access to a board-certified emergency physician, some critical care nurses sitting in a room waiting for people to call. So in the small town hospital, they might have a TV on the wall, something like this with a camera on the top of it, and then I'm sitting in a room in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and have eight or nine of those things, and then people call in, and so instead of walking from room to room to room, I just move from camera to camera to camera. And we have 100 customers across that, that map. So as far away as Afton, Wyoming, down into Kansas, up into to Baudet, Minnesota. <clears throat> right now we do about 850 to 900 in video encounters every month. Uh, so uh, the access to us, uh, what we do in the emergency is what you might call your transfer center. So we have a quarterback model, to use a word that I've heard here before, where uh, the uh, emergency physician will take on the ownership of accepting patients on behalf of the hospital. And that was a rocky road when we first started because people wanted to say, well, how come I'm not involved in that decision? And then we said, well, because don't you normally say yes if you have a bed? And they said, well, yes. Okay. Well, then I'm going to say yes. We'll get the patient moving, and then we can talk about where they're going to go and why they're going to go and who's really going to take care of them because the end user just wants the patient out of their building. Uh, mainly because it's the sickest patient they're dealing with all week or all month. And so how can we help make that process smoother and better? Uh, so you can see this data up there. Uh, our biggest thing is that we've arranged for about 15,000 transfers. We've uh, avoided about 2,500 transfers by, again, inserting a physician into that process, giving them some advice on that patient really doesn't need to come here or they'd be best served elsewhere, those kind of things. So it's not about only bringing patients in. A 20% avoided transfer rate, though, <clears throat> Is, uh, is quite high. It's good for, the, good for that local community to keep the patient local, right? The economics of trying to keep that patient local. And it's good for patient uh, satisfaction when they get flown here for their head injury, to be seen in your emergency department by your trauma service, to be discharged from home about the same time the family's screaming up at, after driving 80 miles an hour in a blizzard, to come see them and now they're all wondering why they're going home. We just got flown here. Why should we do this? That ever happened here? <laughs> yeah, happens everywhere. And so just in transfer savings alone, we're estimating about $20 million calculated on a blend of I fly versus drive based off condition. And we know that transfer avoided race by asking the hospital, is this someone you would have sent if we weren't involved? They get that on every patient that they do. So it's self-reported on them. And it's very interesting, so I'll give you one story on how that changes. Uh, my hometown, I, I like to use it, Wishick, North Dakota. My dad's the family doctor there and has been for 30-plus years or so. And uh, his nurse practitioner that was working, who literally changed my diapers when I was little, is now uh, I'm working with on a camera. So it's, it's pretty fun. So I'm, I'm working with Polly, and they have this AFib patient with rapid ventricular response. Not really sick, not really having any problems. And I said, well, let's give him a fluid bolus. We'll give some cardizem, slow him down, and then we can just tuck him in. And she's like, well, we never keep these kind of patients here. Are you crazy? Uh, okay, so I called the cardiologist and I arranged for a transfer. Well, that's okay, they didn't want to keep that there. It seemed okay. About six months later, no kidding, almost the exact same patient, 54-year-old uh, atrial fib, rapid ventricular response, 
Polly, let's do this. You want me to arrange for a cardiologist? Why would we need a cardiologist? We always keep these kind of patients here. <laughs> and what had happened was over a period of six months, because they were working with a physician, because the nurses felt a little more comfortable having someone to reach out virtually 24-7, 365, they started to keep sicker patients in their hospital and started to say, why would we send a patient like this? And if we need anything, we know we can call you and you'll help arrange for them to go somewhere else. So that's why that avoided transfer rate, if you see it, we usually turn on sites in, in batches, so five or six come on, and then our avoided transfer rate goes up and then it goes back down, and then it goes up, and then it goes back down. And we know it's that learning curve of them saying, yeah, we keep stuff here, we don't need you all. So here's an example of our receiving station. Uh, this is an outside facility that uh, we have some computers on the side. I always tell people it's just that we have the Google, the world's greatest medical resource. So when you call and say, hey, this lady got bit by a raccoon. Do we have to worry about rabies? I'll do some small talk while typing. And then I'll be like, oh, no, rabies, Google. Oh, good. <laughs> so I look smart, but really I... I'm just using the Google. <laughs> so this is, a, we do a lot of media interviews and things like that. And this is a quote from one of my partners who got a little nervous about being interviewed. And this actually showed up in the newspaper. <laughs> Sometimes I'm standing there watching the team on the camera struggle and I'm crapping my pants because I know how bad it feels to be in their shoes. But over the years, I've trained myself to not let anyone know what I've done in my pants. <laughs> so you all get what he's trying to say, right? But, Probably not the prettiest way to, <laughs> to have your, your, says Dr. So-and-so. <laughs> These are the kind of things we see in our e-emergency program. So it's the kind of things that you would see in a busy emergency department, minus the back pains and migraine headaches. We don't see those kind of things. We have about, about 5% of ED volume for a typical hospital. So 95% of the time, they don't use our e-emergency program. 5% of the time or so, they're pushing a button to have us actively engaged. And so a lot of our things are major and minor trauma, cardiac disease, behavioral health, shortness of breath, full arrest. And what we're doing is bringing a lot of critical care to one location. So as an example, I was telling this yesterday to the emergency doctors. In my emergency medicine residency training, if I saw five true pediatric arrests, I'm probably lying because it just doesn't happen. Thank God it doesn't happen. And then the chances of me being on shift when it happens is pretty small. But when I sit here across eight states and 100 facilities, if I go a week without seeing pediatric arrest, that's kind of unusual. And every day I'm managing codes, and every day I'm working with sepsis and doing STEMIs. And how many of you have ever given thrombolytics before for a STEMI? Okay, so in my world, I had never done that. I trained at Mayo, they go to the cath lab, they go to my place, the cath lab's two feet from the emergency department. Never done that. Now I'm 400 miles away from the closest cath lab and I'm starting to give thrombolytics. And now I've given thrombolytics to hundreds of patients. And it's not that hard. It's really scary, but it's not that hard. I like to get his opinion first. Are you okay, let's do it. <clears throat> So those are the kind of things we're doing. And then just from a quality perspective in the last two minutes, you know, we saw airway, chest pain, and um, sepsis were things that we were lacking in. That's what you saw when I first started. So we saw a lot of poor airway things over our camera. Uh, first pass success when we are keeping track of it, 60%. Not so high. The literature's more like 90% it should be. Uh, and 2% failed airway, that's a high number. That's ending up in surgical airways over a camera that we're assisting with or just trying to bag through it. So we said, how can we be better in our rural communities. We put together an education piece. We tried to get everybody video laryngoscopes. We've tied those video laryngoscopes because it's video into our camera. So now I'm seeing in real time what they're seeing when they're intubating on my camera. So I can be the experienced provider for them if it's been a few years since they've had a blade in their hand. And then we went to the airway guru courses. If you've ever got a flyer that says, come to our advanced airway course in Miami or Las Vegas, and we get that flyer, I get it all the time. Seems like they're always having a course. We said, hey, we'd like to have some people come to your course, but you teach a lot of stuff that they don't care anything about. Can we just make it about airway management and rapid sequence intubation? And we want to teach it over the video. And they said, this is great. So they came to Sioux Falls with their course, which was kind of neat. And now they're coming back for a second time, April 10th. If anyone wants to come, we have 10 slots open. <laughs> uh, and we're going to, uh, we, we did this airway course that's focused really on what they need to know about airway management and using the video scope. And now our first quarter of 
the study I was just reviewing the results before that we have an increased first pass success by 33%. So very, very interesting stuff. Same thing, the things that we measure that were important, you know that study that I showed you by that lady from Harvard that says uh, people are getting killed in rural hospitals with cardiac stuff, that was all based off claims data. I was saying I don't think that's true. I've been in a lot of rural hospitals, I work in them. And what we found was it wasn't important for the hospital to document aspirin or no aspirin. It wasn't important because they weren't judged on that and they weren't paid by that like you are. If you miss aspirin in your emergency department, $20,000 out the door. If they miss it, no, you know, Susie still goes to the gym. So we wanted to look at our clinical impact by doing the same thing, dividing the program, telling them it's important to get an ECG, telling them it's important to get aspirin. And you can see this, door to doctor time down 13 minutes, door to ECG time now is under 10 minutes uh, for most of our facilities. In fact, our top tier is four minutes door to ECG time, better than most tertiary centers in the country can provide an ECG. Our door to TPA down 13 minutes, and what that has made is um, 99%, we missed one, uh, of patients eligible for TPA that we were going to give thrombolytics to got thrombolytics within that 30 minutes before it was historically terrible. And then our door, indoor out times was 36 minutes down. Mainly we gave them permission to say hello and send patients without having any other data because of that quarterback model to say, yep, we're going to take them, or yep, we're going to send them to Salt Lake City, don't worry about it. You take care of the patient. Same thing with stroke, you can see some of that data there. So by focusing on certain areas of care, you can really impact, be impactful. And then what's coming next? Um, this is that direct-to-consumer stuff. So we're starting to get into some of that direct-to-consumer stuff, but we want to do it in a different way, perhaps with kiosks and, and things of that nature. And then I, this is really great to read. It just says the five health systems are making the best use of telemedicine, and I just wanted to put up there that it had Avera Health listed with names that we don't normally get associated with. So here's our differentiator in my wrap-up. We've put it all in one building. We've had lots of patients that we touch. We do telemedicine on a grand scale. 600,000 square miles of coverage, about $140 million in uh, savings. Proven and predictable. And in emergency medicine, you also are supposed to have a flow diagram, so I didn't include one, so here's my flow diagram. Any questions? Great, thanks so much for being with us. Um, could you speak just for a moment about the role of nursing in all of your ESWE emergency models? Uh, so here's what we get from our nursing staff. They do, like everything else, they're like the sergeants of the place and run the joint, and are a valuable member, and I would not design a program without them. Mainly because as physicians, we order a lot of stuff that we have no idea how to implement. So I'll order a nitro drip, and let's put it in an art line, and let's do that stuff, and then I walk away, and I go drink my coffee, and then the nurses are in the room for a while doing stuff. And then if someone would ask me, like, how do I put that in the pump, I would have no idea how that would work. I mean, I could figure it out, but it's, it's not. So our nurses are another mentor for that nurse that might be a new grad nurse in the rural hospital working the night shift by themselves, and say, what you have in your right hand, put it in your left hand, inject it in the bag, put it in that pump, because I know exactly what pump you have, and I want you to push one, two, seven, and start. And that's all they have to do. So allowing them to have that chance to have a mentor that's experienced doing that. Uh, so both on our EICU side, taking care of ICU patients, and on our emergency side, valuable members of the team. But, but just explain a little bit more how they work in the, in the system, you know, where you're sitting in the hub. They're right there with you. Yeah, they're, it's, so it's a side-by-side team sport. So you saw that picture that I showed where there's the bald-headed guy, Paul, sitting next to the nurse. That was physician-nurse. And that's how we do all of our calls. We engage it together. It's an entry together. Our nurses will start taking on some of the documentation for that rural facility or our tertiary center. We actually have cameras in our own tertiary center, so it's not just about a rural solution. And we have our physicians readily available to help if needed. Yes, sir. Oh, sorry. You, you, you call them out. You can imagine one objection to this might be folks say, oh, this totally makes sense. But in our current fee-for-service environment, all those uh, critical care docs who can bill fully or those ED docs, how do you deal with the, that, those pro-fee compensation issues? Have you figured out, can we bill for those things? Sure. You could bill for some of those. Uh, visits. Right now we don't. <clears throat> we uh, charge the hospital. We do business to business. So we are doing subscription fees. We are a consortium. You want to join a consortium, you pay a subscription fee to join. The nice thing about being a not-for-profit working for nuns, ha ha ha, is, um, <laughs> is that it's more of this social justice thing, right? So I'm not retiring in the condo in Florida with all the money I'm making off this telemedicine. I'm, I have the ability to, uh, the more sites we have, the cheaper it is for everybody involved. 
that's how we've done most of our programs outside of our consult, the e-consult model that we've been doing for a long time. That just builds like a traditional clinic visit. If you see a patient in person or you see them on the video, you build the same. So that's how we've got around it. We can talk offline um, about how you can actually bill for those services if you wanted to. But I never like getting a bill from the radiologist, if there's any radiologists here, like six weeks later when you didn't see one, you know, and then all of a sudden you got the bill for the radiology interpretation that didn't feel good. So we didn't want that where a patient wouldn't remember that they saw somebody and all of a sudden they got a bill. Don, what about cross-boundary licensing issues? So <clears throat> that's a whole other hour lecture. Do you want me to keep going? Yeah, <laughs> just a few minutes. <laughs> uh, so our view of uh, telemedicine and the view of the federal government's interpretation so far is to cross borders, you need to be licensed in that state. And if you're going to interact with the patient, you need to be credentialed in that facility. So as an example, if you were doing a physician-to-physician -physician conversation, never really talk to the patient, not necessarily need to be credentialed in that hospital. <clears throat> Even doing some of our traditional e-consult work where we're seeing patients in clinic settings, because of the way that clinics are now affiliating with hospitals being a uh, long, complicated story, but you actually now have to be a little careful about whether or not you need to be credentialed in the hospital, even though you're seeing a clinic patient six blocks from the hospital. So it is a very challenging place. I told you we have back office staff that matches any hospital. We have our own credentialing staff. We have our own licensing staff. We have our own legal team that all they do is look at these kind of things. So great question. Um, in the early slide, you mentioned <clears throat> the possible impact on recruitment and retention yeah. um, of rural physicians and, say, nurses. Could you comment on what the impact has been and also what the impact has been on the critical access hospitals and, um, and their um, durability and sustainability? Sure. Good, great questions. Um, nobody wants to work in isolation. Those that do um, have a reason to go to that rural community, like, I grew up in that town, so I'm going to go back to that town. Uh, we've had, I don't say hundreds, but tens of examples of patients or people choosing facilities based off having telemedicine available. So my favorite is um, uh, Dr. Signs in this pretty uh, hospital, not on our system. It's got everything. It's got a swimming pool, a weight center, five or six other partners. It's like this great little community close to a big city would be a perfect place. And then they have this hospital that's just right outside of the uh, Indian Reservation, kind of run down, but has all the telemedicine services. The doctor chose the telemedicine one. Got out of his contract, actually, to go there because he didn't want to work in isolation. He wanted to have the backup of the intensivist and the emergency doctor and those things. Um, <clears throat> so that's how that recruitment piece works. I use my own father as an example. He was going to retire uh, two years ago, but now that he's not on call and up every night because he has this cadre of my partners that are helping cover his emergency department, which is the part that kills him, is getting up at 2 in the morning, he's still practicing. He's still seeing patients in the clinic, so his longevity of his career has, has gone. So those are just two examples of another 100 that I could give you of things of that nature. And then for nursing recruitment and pharmacy recruitment and all those things, you can keep adding on. John? Yeah, uh, so, so for those of you that don't know, we've recently come to an agreement to sublet from the School of Medicine a 7,000 square foot space that's in the corridor that's on the ground floor level um, of the Williamson Building, which will, uh, you know, which will connect a much greatly expanded telemedicine hub aligned, um, aligned with some of the things that you described to our acute care operation. I wondered if you could comment on what you've learned about the, you know, about the organizational and the practical and the political issues of connecting a virtual healthcare system in, in, um, in the bricks and mortar operation, you know, your Avera Medical Center to, to the yeah. e-care. It was interesting, the transition of our team. So it used to be like it was the emergency doctors versus the ICU doctors versus, you know, everybody's in their own camps. And as we brought our virtual team together, the intensivists, the pharmacists, the emergency doctors, the hospitalists, the whatever, we became a virtual team, so now it was like us versus them kind of kind of feel. And it was nice because you started to collaborate across service lines instead of isolation of these silos of care. Coordinating with the tertiary centers, because we are, uh, I look at us like more like a CT scan. You know, you can choose to use us or choose not to use us. Uh, when my father first got his first CT scanner, he says, I don't need that, that's garbage. I've been doing medicine for 20 years without CT scan. 
it's for my weaker partners kind of thing. <laughs> Interestingly enough, he said the same thing when we brought e-emergency to him. I don't need that garbage. What do I want my son looking over my shoulder? That's for my weaker partners. And now he loves it because of the coordination of how that allows the care to take place. And so it started off slow. It started off with a lot of change management of changing the way that we do things. And doctors don't like to change. So it takes the doctors a little while. The nursing staff grabs onto this really fast. In fact, uh, usually the note we get from the CEO is, thanks a lot. Our nurses say, if this goes away, they're all quitting. <laughs> I said, good, we hooked you. Could you comment on high volume times, whether they call you in on your day off? So when our doctors are working the shift, they're uh, in that facility, in our bunker, if you will, uh, for their shift. So they're doing shift work, 12-hour shifts for the ICU, the emergency, and the nurses are doing 12-hour shifts as well. Uh, high volume times. <clears throat> We haven't uh, maxed out our high volume times yet, even with the number of facilities we're in. We have added nursing staff, so we have two or three nurses on during the day, like in a busy emergency department way, with one doctor. Because our volumes are still less than that magic, kind of two patients an hour that an emergency doctor would see. In the ICU, same thing. The number of beds we're, we're covering, we cover 119 beds right now. Our average daily census is about 55 or so in those beds, because again, a lot of them are in the critical access hospital. And people say, well, how can one doctor see 55 ICU patients. Well, one, they're not primary for those patients. They're a second set of eyes. And two, they have the decision support software behind them telling them, what is the patients that I should be focusing on right now? So they'll round on them, and then all of a sudden the blood pressure changes 20 points in room six in Wyoming, and then they say, oh, that's a trend. I need to look in to see what's going on here, or our heart rate changes, or my labs come back as a critical value. And so the software is pointing them into the direction in which they go. It doesn't then automatically mean that they intervene on that patient, it might be calling the intensivist at the bedside or the hospitalist at the bedside and say, hey, did you know that your potassium came back at two? See, you're busy. Do you want me to put that order in for you? So trying to do that coordination of care uh, and trying to be the partner when they're at the bedside and when they're in their absence, the nursing staff can work with them at nights and on weekends and holidays to uh, let that practitioner be at home or be dealing with something else instead of being called in to deal with something that can be done virtually. We're going to probably... I know there are many more questions. I've seen several hands up, uh, and this could go on for a while. I know some people have to get off to clinics. Uh, if you have some more questions, maybe we could just engage some people down here with Don. The other thought that I had is we haven't talked about global uh, mm -hmm. use of this and international use of this, and I just was listening to National Public Radio about the Martian colony that's about to happen. People who have been, you know, volunteering to be screened to go and set up a new civilization elsewhere. So the idea of intergalactic also sure. comes to mind. But what you've shown us today is the ability to do medicine at a distance. It's not a distance of feet anymore. It's a distance that's over right. the cyber network. You give me an IP address and I can connect to it. There you go. So I want to thank you, Don, for coming today on behalf of the Department of Medicine on behalf of the telehealth group here. Thank you for being with us. Please come up and talk with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.